If you want to get rid of all the ads, just choose the David McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts and you'll hear us without any flutter or noise or ads. Lovely, John. Beautiful. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is time for the podcast. And the podcast today is coming to you from the very, very far away Canadian city of Vancouver, where I am here to do a TED Talk. Some of you might know the TED Talk. <laughs> exactly, Johnny Boy. Telling you, not every day you hang out here with these TED people, the Tedsters. I am really over, I mean, this funny, funny part of the of the world here. Extremely, extremely interesting. Different, yeah. quite different to what I expected. I've never been here before. In fact, I was here for one day many, many years ago, like a long, long time ago. But uh, never been in this part of the world before. TED is a fascinating thing. I'll I'm tell you about it in a second. But Vancouver itself, on first impressions, it's like every city, John. It needs the weather. And I know that I left Ireland when it was lashing yeah. rain. And I have arrived here into what can only be described. It's kind of Pacific. It's You know that sort of rain that you get in County yes. Clare, the yeah. burn? Yeah, right? yeah. Where wet rain. It's, yeah, very wet, very <laughs> wet rain. You can see it coming from the Atlantic. And it kind of it's kind of hesitant and it's kind of playing with you and you're thinking, is it arriving? Is it not? And then gradually it just becomes damper yeah. and yeah. damper yeah. and damper. So apparently there are lovely mountains and hills around here, but I have get your boots it. on, Mac. Get your anorak on. Stop complaining and get out there. That's what I say. Yeah, I will, I'll, I'll do that a little bit later on. But it's also only six degrees. <laughs> it's okay, stick a woolly hat on then as well. But it's very nice to be here. But you know, Mac, I'm a little bit suspicious though, because the last time there was an American president visiting Ireland, you skipped the country as well. Is there something going on? Yeah, well, the CIA have a very interesting uh, sort of sleeper group of which I'm a fully paid yeah, up member. And uh, no, I just... It's, it's, it is coincidence, although I have been watching the Biden visit oh, from afar and all the yeah. shenanigans and the reaction to it and the this and the that. And yeah, just the celebration of Irish America. And as we said in the pod last week, you know, this is a very important resource for the economy, for the exactly, society yeah. and for the sense of what the country is. You know, this idea that, again, I can tell you out here, John, the amount of young Irish people out in this part of the world is phenomenal. The very first person I met I was in Whistler, which is up the road to do a gig last week, and I tried, which is 
kind of newborn full sort of territory mm. to ski in Whistler, uh, which is, again, the Canadians are zooming down, snowboarding and, you know. The JMs of this world. Exactly, exactly. And I'm just looking like a little barrel on a pair of sticks. And uh, But the young fella was a guy from Connor from Wicklow who was working in the little ski place in Whistler. And then loads and loads of Irish accents all over the shop there. And then you come down to Vancouver, which is about two two hours down the road. And again, a huge amount of Irish, young Irish people here. Phenomenal. I think the figure is between five and 10,000 in Canada in any wow. one year, which is a lot, which is actually much more, interestingly, than are in the United yeah, States. Yeah. So the Americans, despite their their extraordinary willingness to identify with us, they're actually it's very quite difficult for young people to get into the States. Well, it's States. interesting because that's where my Maggie went for her J-1 visa a few years ago. She went to Vancouver and she had a mixed experience. Like she really liked it, found it really interesting, traveled around a bit, but she found the city kind of surprising in many ways, like surprisingly expensive, kind of hard to find reasonable accommodation. Jobs weren't that easy to come by, although she did get one. But it also, there's a huge amount of homelessness there. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll come on to the, we'll come on to the nitty-gritty of Vancouver in a second because it is fascinating. But I, I want to go back to the, the, the Biden visit because you were, before, you, before we came on, you were just, you were a bit shouting and roaring and getting upset about the Brits about this thing. <laughs> well, what, what, what happened? I was, again, I haven't been around, was, right? I'm, I'm 8,000 yeah, miles Yeah, I know, I know, I know. It, it was kind of funny and kind of annoying at the same time. There was a huge deal made in the UK press about Biden. And it was very anti-Biden, in particular the likes of The Telegraph, calling Biden petty and vindictive was what they called him. And cartoons, I think in The Times and stuff, of, of Biden portrayed as a leprechaun doing a jig with a pint of Guinness in his hand, calling him a Brexit hater and all that kind of stuff. It was very, very bizarre. But it just harked back to kind of that old British Empire, anti-Irish kind of reporting. It almost smacked of, I don't know, a kind of a an insecurity amongst the, the right-wing British press that on one hand, if, if Biden is loving Ireland, he has to be hating Britain and vice versa. It's like some sort of weird binary thing going on. Well, I just think, you know, from what I gather is that, you know, Brexit has been so toxic in the UK and it has been such a failure for the Brexiteers. And everything, for particularly the Tory Graph and the, the Daily Mail and the Express yeah. and all those papers, everything is seen through the prism of if it is good for them, it has to be bad for us. Yeah. And if it is good for us, it has to be bad for them. And that, of course, is the sign of uh, a very weak mind, because what a decent mind should always do is to be able to you know, carry two contradictory thoughts in its head at the same time and be cool yeah. with that. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is that if you think about what Brexit was and is, it is the tyranny of nostalgia over analysis, right? So what you've basically done is you've elevated this very woolly, selective notion of nostalgia, of what might have been and what could well be in the future. And you have decided that this is an economic policy or a political policy, when it's not, when in actual fact, the idea was Castle Ray, the great British negotiator, mm was the fellow who came up with the idea that countries do not have any friends, they have interests. Yeah, yeah. And that's the way in which countries operate. So the United States at the moment has said, okay, what is our interest here? 
Yes, Joe Biden has the Irish-American thing going on. That's incredibly important for the Irish. It's even more important, you could argue, for the Irish-Americans in terms of its political cycle. But what is the interest of the United States? And the interest of the United States is to have a partner it can do business with to speak to mm. the European Union, right? And it just so happened that Britain was that partner for the 40 years Britain was within the EU. Ireland was a small little sideshow, but the actual real negotiations between the Americans and the Brits would have gone on in London ahead of the Brits going to the EU and saying, look, this is the position paper of NATO, of the Western Alliance, of the Anglo-American worldview. We'll represent that. Now that's gone. Yeah. So yeah. Britain has no real interest for the United States. That's the key, right? The idea that Britain is a special relationship is obviously nonsense. The special relationship existed when there was something the Americans could get out of yeah. Britain. Now what they're thinking, they're probably saying, well, what can we get out of Britain diplomatically that we can't get out of a much more small, pliant, and frankly, nicer bunch, the Irish? And I say nicer in the sense that, you know, the British think that the Americans are not reading their press. The British think that the Americans are not aware of what they're saying about them, right? And ultimately, we talked about soft power last week, right? Soft power is the power of the mind. It's the power of creativity. It's the power of friendship. And I think it was quite interesting that if you look at the way in which relations between countries are, you know, it's very, very clear that the Americans, the certainly democratic American administrations, don't regard Ireland just as a mm. friend, but almost regard Ireland as family, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is a completely different way of looking at it. And we have something that they need, which is a direct access to an influence within, even though it's modest, within the European Union. So there, there's a sort of an obvious thing. And of course, what they have is the interests of Irish-American corporations and American corporations, which is Absolutely. Enormous. But I wonder, though, I mean... Is this particular to Biden? Will that change if the next election comes on, whether it's a Republican or whoever? Will that change a less Irish-focused president? Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously the Brexiteers went for Trump. Mm. I mean, that was their card. They played yeah. that card and they will continue to play that card. And if Trump gets re-elected, and I was talking to somebody yesterday, I was doing a dress rehearsal here, and one of the sound uh, engineers, she was chatting to me, she was from California and we were just chat, chit-chatting about America. And uh, she was just saying, my God, if that man gets in mm. again, she <laughs> said, please, can I have that Irish passport of my great-grandparents? <laughs> I said, I'm sure, I'm sure there's a little clause somewhere in the Department of Foreign Affairs that, but I mean, so the, the Brexiters went for yeah. Trump and Trump's yeah. their man. Don't forget they were very anti-Obama as yes, well. Yes, they were. So when Obama told them, listen, guys, you're going to go to the back of the queue when it comes to a trade deal, the Brexiters hopped up and down. Basically, look, think about it. The Brexiteer idea is to weaken the European Union. Mm. It is to weaken the ties between Europe and the rest of the world. This is its, its international agenda. And it is to elevate the role of Britain in the world as an isolated, but still regarding itself as a superpower. So it's a kind of a 1950s vision. The Democrats stand for international multilateral cooperation, which means a partner in the European Union, number one. Yeah, globalism. Globalism. And and the interesting thing about Brexit is that Brexit kind of, on the one hand, talks about global Britain, but on the other hand, doesn't, doesn't believe in globalism, exactly. yeah, which yeah. is kind of mad. 
So I would I would just say from the wisdom of uh, 8,000 miles away, chill your boots. You're going to get this carry on all the time. I suspect if you actually drilled down deeply into the types of individuals who wrote these articles, the journalists, I wouldn't say they're, you know, they're not Pulitzer Prize winning fuckers. Well, I- right. These are not people. These are not people who got Ted John. They would yeah, be invited. Of to course, of Ted. course not. Well, it's not the first time. In fairness, that the British press have been having a little pop at at the Irish. I believe this or not. I was down at my mother's house, going through some stuff. This is a little aside, but I got to tell you this: going through some stuff and whipping out, you know photo albums and clippings and stuff. Robbing his mother's purse as he used to do when he was 12. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> by fags, exactly. exactly. But I came across this clipping from the Sunday Chronicle of February 18th, 1923. Okay. I don't know, I haven't quite figured out why that clipping is kept, but I was flicking through the paper and I came across one little bit. I have to read this here. And it says... I wonder whether the Irish Republicans will boycott the new free state postage stamps. The paper was made in England. The die was engraved and the plates constructed at the Royal Mint London. Even the gum, which the untamed Republican tongue must lick, was put on over here. And only the actual printing was done in Dublin. <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's the sort of... Vicious. <laughs> Well, but I, I, let's put that into context. That makes complete economic sense in 1923 when 99% of all Irish exports and 99% of all Irish imports came from the United Kingdom. Yeah. The equivalent figure today is 11%. So, you know, we have completely and utterly diverged from the UK economically. I think nostalgically they're still regarding us as... Who are these uppity little paddies mm. to be trying to uh, assert themselves in the world stage? The vast majority of English people don't think this way. It is just the Tory press. And the Tory press have been so humbled and belittled by the failure of Brexit that they use any opportunity to bang that drum. So I think in general, because we have a lot of English listeners, the vast majority of English people are probably also thinking to themselves, what's this anti-Irish stuff? This is not what we believe yeah. is not what we aspire Absolutely, to. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and, and I think you just have to realise that it's it's always going to be there. And, you know, it, it's links up with the DUP and the ERG and all these extreme views. But the, the mainstream in England are people thinking, my kids can't work in Europe anymore. I can't go over and get a job there over there. I'm queuing at Dover. I'm not too sure. But the upside of all this thing is, I think, Most of them are thinking we've been sold a pup. They have what they call buyer's remorse. But now they're kind of stuck in a situation where they now have to own Brexit, but only for a while. I think this, I think, I think we're reading, we're reaching peak, peak silliness in the UK. Peak silliness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they need to make the best of it. But okay, let's talk about Canada, TED Talk and Vancouver and what's going on there after this. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
you really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You know, Mac, do you remember back in the late 80s, there was the, the various different visas for the United States, the Morrison visa, and there was another one as well. Uh, I got one of those, the green cards. And I spent a lot of time in America, to and fro, and working all over the place. And I got to know America very well. And I have a kind of a love-hate relationship with America now. But I've never been to Canada, ever. Really? Never. And I must go. I really must go. But you've been there. You've spent a summer there. You're there now. What are your thoughts on on Canada? Well, well actually, the, the most bizarre thing, John, is I was supposed to be a Canadian. And my mum and dad had visas to go and live in Canada in That's the late right, 1950s. And, yeah. I was, and my mum had a job in, in Quebec, in, in, in Montreal, and dad was going to go and get a job there. So I could have been a French-speaking a proper skier. <laughs> exactly. And I, and I, somebody could actually go down the hill properly. <laughs> but uh, no, but then, yeah, you're right. In the mid-80s, I was a fantastic dishwasher in a Chinese restaurant in Spadina yeah. Avenue. I was a dishwasher in another place called Ontario Place. And I really enjoyed it. And I've been coming over and That's back. That's what you specialized in. Was is, yeah, I'm a, I'm a particularly fine dishwasher. I'm a particularly <laughs> fine dishwasher. Hanging out with Colombians, bonded by a love of soccer. At the time when, of course, the Canadians, it was a place beside the Blue Jay Stadium in Toronto where they play that game that right. they call uh, Rounders, I think it is. Uh, <laughs> it's a, f- a form of Rounders, baseball. And they have the <laughs> World Series, which is played usually, the World Series yeah. is usually played between uh, Toronto and Boston or Toronto yeah. and Detroit. And you feel like saying, man, the world is not <laughs> Toronto and Boston. You know, a proper world championship is when Argentina plays France in the final. That's the world. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And uh, but anyway, no, I've I've had a very, very, I've always been very fond of Canada. I've always been very fond of coming here. The people are unbelievably nice, and uh, it's a very civilized place. I mean, I think Paul Krugman once described the United States as an army with an insurance company stuck onto it, which I thought was a very good description of the United States. And, you know, sometimes you get the feeling the same with the, you know, Canada is like a scout troop with healthcare. You know, it's because <laughs> right. everything is kind of volunteerism and everything's very nice. Yeah. But Vancouver fascinates me for the following reason. I've always been fascinated as to what happens to cities, how they engineer themselves, how they change. When I first came to Canada in the 80s, the talk about Vancouver in particular was that it was a very genteel, slightly backwatery, calm place, much, much cheaper than Toronto for people to go and retire to. There's a place mm. out here called Vancouver Island, which I can actually see from my hotel. And Vancouver Island was seen as very, very British, very Victorian, very much part of the legacy of British rule in Canada. 
And you always got the impression, or certainly in the 80s, now the 80s is not that long ago for you and I, it's eternity for a lot of our <laughs> listeners, but for you and I, yeah. it's not that long ago. And when I was in Ontario, there was a governor called Pearson, and he had his first kind of boom bust, housing boom bust, which we'll talk about again. The Canadians are quite good at that. They do that quite a lot. They, they rev up the housing market, they juice it up, and then they have a crisis. But I remember once, uh, one of my uh, jobs there, when I was elevated to working on a cruise ship on Lake Ontario, Fancy. and I was serving you know, canapes at some swanky pants sort of corporate yeah. gig. And I was just there that would serve like another scallop and blah, blah, blah. Okay. But I was overhearing. <laughs> I can't quite imagine that. I know. I, I behaved very well, John. Normally I get fired from these jobs. But I was I know. listening and I was, I was always intrigued. And I was listening and overhearing the conversation. I was talking to them and all, all sorts of stuff. We started chit-chatting away. And there were two cops there. They were mounted police, but they were there to police very discreetly, the governor. And we were mm. chatting, they were saying, what part of Ireland are you from? I said, Dublin. And they said, you know, there was a time not that long ago that Irish people like you wouldn't get a job in Ontario, in Toronto. Because right. Toronto was actually also the very, very first place I've ever seen an orange parade on the 12th of July was in wow. Toronto. Wow, okay. Going down, it's amazing if you think about it, right? Going down the main the street. The drums, the whole lot. All that stuff. So this was very much a British colony feel to it. You got right. the totally different feel in Quebec because they were anti-British and that was their identity. And it was perceived that Vancouver was a sort of a genteel, again, surprise, surprise, it's called British Columbia. It's, you know, you got that feel mm. that this is what you were, was in the nether regions of a declining empire. Yeah. But a pretty nice place to live. Yeah. Now, Vancouver is Asia, right? So the Vancouver that they talked about is a retirement place for white Canadians or British Canadians it's completely changed. You get the feel that you are in some fusion, some fusion of Asia and Europe on the Pacific. And it's very exciting, right? And to put it into context, I think it feels to me at least like Shanghai must have felt between 1920 and 1947. So Shanghai between right. 1920 and 1947 was amongst the most exciting places in the world because the Europeans wanted a foothold into China. Yeah. Still then, even though very, very poor, the biggest market in the world by any stretch of the imagination. The Chinese had been humiliated by the hundred years of humiliation by the Brits, the Americans. So the Americans coming in from the Pacific side, the Brits yeah. coming in from the South China Sea, and the French coming in from Indochina. Okay. And this is the end of the hundred years, wasn't it? So this is the end of the hundred years. Yeah. And what basically happened was the Chinese had to sign these extraordinarily humiliating treaties with the Europeans. And those treaties were all about setting up trading outposts where the Europeans could get access to internal Chinese stuff to re-export out from there, right? And Shanghai, the story of Shanghai is phenomenal. Anybody's ever been there They'll know the story of the Bund, all the old buildings. The 1930s, it was by far and away the most interesting part of the world. There were Russian immigrants, there were communists, there were capitalists, yeah, there were yeah, Jews yeah. fleeing, there was imperialists, there were all dreamers, there was a whole sort of thing, and it was all divided up into little sections. So you had the French section, the British section, the American section, the German section, all that sort of stuff, right? Amazing history. But at its core was the fact that this city was the access for Europeans to North America. When I walk around Vancouver now, 
in the rain with my hood up, not observing very, very much, really thinking, yeah. thinking this is a little bit like, uh, yeah, it's, but it's actually a little bit like, did you ever see Blade Runner, John? Yeah, oh yeah. You know, when the, when the, when the, when the sky, when the, when it's very cloudy and it's constantly rainy and it's, it's the half uh, It's light. endless rain, endless rain. Yeah, yeah. Endless rain. Well, that's what Vancouver's like now. But what I was thinking is, this is the Shanghai of the 21st century. This is where Asia comes to involve itself in the world. This is the hub between the dynamic Asian economies, particularly China, but also a lot of people from India and Pakistan here, but particularly China. And, and why is that? Well, it's because of the way in which certain cities, so if you go back again, it's got a bizarre situation. Vancouver is much smaller than Toronto, but its house prices are much more expensive. And, and why is that the case? It's exactly the podcast we did a couple of weeks ago about demand versus supply the yeah. Irish demand. So because Ireland is plugged into the international supply chain, we've got American demand crashing down into the Irish system and the Irish system can't cope. Here what you have, because nothing really explains why a city like Vancouver should be more expensive than a city like Toronto, because Toronto is much, much bigger. It's like, yeah. it, and, it, and, it's, and it is the commercial capital of Canada. Yeah, yeah, commercial hub, yeah. So what's going on is demand is coming in from elsewhere. Where's that demand coming? That demand is coming from China. When I first worked in Toronto, the people I worked with, the Chinese people were from Hong Kong. They weren't from mainland mm. China. They were from Hong Kong. That has now switched completely. Now, fascinatingly, you have a huge, huge presence of Chinese people here, Chinese business, Chinese money. This is the place they have chosen to come to and make it part, make it their Shanghai, in, in yeah. effect. Okay, if you look at yeah, the yeah, yeah. terms. But what is interesting, if you speak to them, they are actually quite worried about the tone of the Canadian government's attitude to China, which has turned from being very open-armed and extremely welcoming to Chinese people to being something, this is the, the, the Trudeau uh, administration. Mm. Um, this is very much a microcosm of what is happening in our globalized world over the last 30 years. So 30 years ago, this place was rarefied, British, and what I would call old school tartan Canadian, right. almost Scottish Canadian, the Conrad Black Canadian. Remember the guy who used to run the Daily Telegraph? Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, this is very much a trading entrepot between North America and Asia. Not surprisingly, because I'm looking out on the Pacific, so it's very, very clear, right? It's much, much closer. And... What is changing is the entire nature of the city and the entire nature of the place. And this is exactly what's going to happen. All of the West Coast of the United States was very, very white. Then it became very, very Hispanic. Now it's becoming very, very Asian. And this is basically what's happening. This part of the, of the continent, America and Canada, is changing as it should do. Because that's exactly the case. That's exactly, you know, this is where they're close to. And how much of Xi's relationship with Putin and the Ukraine war, and how much of that is having an impact on that changing attitude towards the Chinese Canadians? Well, I think, you know, I spoke to some Chinese people last night who are speaking here at TED, very, very interesting people. And they were all saying, look, your <laughs> propaganda is that we have changed profoundly mm. and that we are the enemy and that America needed an enemy 
And initially it was Russia, but when it's not going to be Russia anymore, it's going to be us. This is their view. Right. And they believe that the Republican Party has become obsessed with Taiwan as the hill upon which the Americans are going to die in the Pacific, okay? If you take it uh, both literally and metaphorically, okay? And that the Chinese are reacting to American saber-rattling. This is their interesting thing. Okay. And they say, we are completely surrounded by American forces in Philippines and Japan and South Korea. They're not wrong. You know, and I said, what about the uh, relationship with Russia? They said, look, you know, the Chinese are very, very happy to have Russia there as a major power because they see Russia as a buffer against America. Now, but equally, they're sort of saying, look, we see a 50 or 60 year view here. And the 50 or 60 year view that we see is that we will get continually stronger economically. Mm. And we will, although the demography is moving against us, we are not going to be going anywhere soon. So I think, you know, that is probably the fact of the matter. But their view is very much that the Chinese will try and downplay any international incident because it's not in their interest at all to get involved in any conflict with the United States over Taiwan. And they're, I think, hoping that Taiwan will kind of slip off the agenda over the course of the next few years. But in order for that to happen, John, they've got to stop doing military engagements around there and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, for sure. But what's the feeling on the ground, on the streets of Vancouver? Well, ordinary people's lives here are very, very much that this is the place that young Asians go to get on. This is for what young Irish people saw in New York for 200 years. This is what young Asians see. This is their New York, in a way. So they're coming for their New York. The city then is changing into a sort of a Shanghai where it's definitely part of Canada, it's definitely part of North America, but its ethnic mix is changing rapidly. You see that in house prices going through the roof. You also see that, you know, in food. I mean, I really do wish they'd cook a bit of food here. (laughs) You're not into the sushi. (laughs) Yeah, I I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind a rash sandwich now, in fairness. The old sushi is, is, you know, I'd like to go into a restaurant that has an oven. That would be really helpful, (laughs) really reassuring. Come here, sweet, come here, sweet. You were talking there, you mentioned about house prices going through the roof there yeah. and and young Asians. But what about kind of young Canadians? And like, wh- where is the economy headed? Where's the Canadian Well, house economy? prices are falling here, right? This is... Oh, okay. Yeah. So Canada, I was talking about in the 1980s, they had that Pearson boom in Ontario. Mm. They do have boom bus cycles a lot in Canada in housing. Right. And we're on a bus cycle at the minute, are we? House prices are down 16% in British Columbia and 18% in Ontario for the last four or five months, right? So house prices are falling here. Why? Because Canadian interest rates have gone from zero to four and a half percent. So you've got this, it's, it's the same story all over the world. But I'll give you a crazy statistic, right? Is that last year, right, 2022, Mm. Housing costs, so mortgages, the whole thing, as a percentage of income, 62% in Canada. That is phenomenal for young Canadians, right? So 62% of their take-home after-tax income was going on housing costs. That is phenomenal. That's completely unsustainable. What I'm saying is young Canadians, it's urban Canadians. It's people in Vancouver. It's people in in, in Toronto. What what is it here in Ireland? It's considerably less. I think it's in the 40s, 30s or 40s. I'm not right. too sure of the figure in Ireland, right? But it's considerably less. And 
not only is it considerably less, but it's considerably higher than it ever was for any other previous generation in Ireland. So Canada, and I mean, the house prices are out of whack, even by the standards of other countries. And I think that's what a lot of people have found when they come here. It's a very, very expensive city. And it's a very, very expensive country. And mm. it's, one of the, it's one of the very few places that Dubliners will say, oh my God, this is as expensive as back home when you go out. Right. And you spend money like, like, like confetti here. You really do. How much is the pint? That's the best way of... of... Yes. I mean, if you translate it, definitely about seven or eight euros. Right. So it's, right. it's, it's, it's expensive. And of course, what, what, is, what is really very big here, you know, the cocktail bars, you, know, you, can, you don't really go and get a beer. You know, you get the yeah. deluge of it. It's like going out with JM. You get a deluge of cocktail options and smoky <laughs> this. Old-fashioned snake that. bite is, is the only cocktail that I go for. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, the, the, the point is, the point is that Canada is a country that is probably changing demographically quicker than almost any country in the world. But it's doing that willingly. And that's another feeling I got, which I'm always, it's more of a, it's more of a sort of, a feeling of sereneness, John, in nature. And I don't usually okay. get that, right? But yeah. I, was, I was driving up to, from Vancouver to Whistler the other day, and there's, the mountains are enormous. I actually thought they were the Rockies, but the Rockies were actually 700 miles to the east. But the coastal mountains, here was like, oh, Geography was never your, your strong point. Physical geography. Never did juggle in the leaving search. But I was resting at the top of this very, very large mountain, which I... Subsequently found out it was not the Rockies, but none, nonetheless, it was the uh, coastal mountains of British Columbia. And this is a very strange moment. I'm having an epiphany. There was a movement in American philosophy called transcendentalism in the 1850s and 1860s. Yes. And it came out of the yeah. Unitarian Church, of which there was one in, in Dublin, in Boston. Yeah. And it was, it was this basically belief in the extraordinary serenity of nature and the fact that man and nature were at one. The big book about written was by a guy called Thoreau. Right. His yeah. name is Henry David Thoreau. I'm not so sure if he's related to Louis Thoreau. Same name. So right. Thoreau, right? And it was called Life in the Woods. And it was basically about going back to nature and observing, you know, the beauty of nature and the, the spirituality of it and the bigness of it and the vastness. This and is what, what uh, Alexander Supertramp was going on about it. He was reading that as well. Was he? In, he, he was the fella in Into the Wild, my favourite film. A great name, Alexander Supertramp. No, that, was his, that was his road name. Uh, it was McCandless. Uh, we're going to leave this podcast here on transcendentalism, but on tramps, Vancouver has an extraordinary homeless problem. Extraordinary. Yeah. And, and we can talk about that maybe again at a certain stage. But I was up this mountain, I was thinking to myself, you know, America really is far away. And by that, I mean, it feels really safe, North America. It feels that you're actually, you're protected on either side by the oceans, like yeah. the Pacific and the yeah. Atlantic. So you've, you've naturally no real enemies very, very close to you. The nature is kind of phenomenal, like the ratio of people to open land, the ratio mm. of mountains, the height of the mountains, the extraordinary velocity of the rivers here, the extraordinary clash of the seasons. You know, you really feel, in yeah. a way you don't feel in Europe very much, that you're really at one with nature here. 
and uh, which is very unlike me because I'm a bookish sort of chap, as you know. I don't really like to be out and about. I, I, I can't believe what I'm hearing here. Well, no, because I much prefer to be sitting inside, right? But uh, <laughs> you clearly had a moment. But I was here the other day thinking to myself that in a violent world, and we are living in a violent world, and in a world of anxiety, and in a world where people are trying to figure things out. Amazingly, in Canada, you get that impression in Canada, there is a serenity. And that serenity must come from a proximity to nature and must come from an appreciation of nature. And uh, Jesus, if I stay here long enough, John, I'll be wearing Birkenstocks. Jesus, Mac. When you get back, I'm going to take you hiking, show you the serenity of Wicklow. Okay. <laughs> I thought you said I'm going to take you drinking. Enough of this sort of hiking <laughs> malarkey. Anyway, I'm off to do my TED Talk tomorrow or the next day. I'm actually doing, I was meant to be doing the first TED Talk. I'm now doing the last one, John. I'm closing That's the bloody That's a good thing. slot. That's a, a good slot. It's a very good slot. But it's, you know, you feel like it's a lot of these things. You feel like, just get it over with. Just get it over yeah. with. Have you decided what you're going to talk about? <laughs> well, you know, the, the hardest part of going last isn't the pressure, John. It's the sobriety. <laughs> so when's this one going to be out then? Well, I'm not too sure, John. People should look out for it on TED.com. You never know, John. I might speak about transcendentalism. I might change my entire speech and go into this sort of Henry David Theroux sort of Emerson Waldo. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, listen, best of luck with the talk and have a blast. Ah, sure you know, John. I'll talk to you the weekend. <laughs> So, let's see how myself and JM get on at the HRBR clinic. Hey, here we are. So, what do you expect from this, JM? I expect clarity and information, how it works, what the whole A to Z process is, how much it's going to cost, all those questions that you can't really find online. Yeah. Hoping to get an answer today. It's going to be fun. For you. <laughs> So, Jam, your general health, how's that? Is it good? Very good. And how old were you when you first noticed your hair beginning to change? So, Jam, I want you to photograph your hair. Mm -hmm. I just to reassure you, absolutely nobody else ever sees this. Okay, so chin down a tiny bit, please. And then just look me straight at the camera. And just stay in there. When you are born, nature gives you about 25,000 grafts on the top of your head. And the most I've ever transplanted was um, 11,000. And that was in James Nesbitt, the actor. He had amazing hair at the back and sides of his scalp that we had, so he had loads of material to work with. It's a very important thing that bald men who have very little hair left under the top of their head have 14 times greater incidence of skin cancer and the scalp hair skin than those who don't. So, JM, as I said to you before, if there was a cure, I wouldn't be here. There is no cure. And despite what the internet claims, don't be taken in by those false promises. Men with hair loss can be very vulnerable, and people prey on that vulnerability. So the next thing is, what can we do to help you? There are two approaches to this. One is surgical and the other is medical. What most men do is to use a combination of both surgery and medicine. 
but you've such extensive hair loss developing in the front here and it's so rapid I would prefer to trial you on a course of medical treatments first so rather than brushing in and transplanting you I prefer to manage your hair loss as best we can and when somebody comes here they establish a long-term relationship with us it's not come in have a transplant and go home like Turkey we have 33,000 patients as I said patient number one in our database is still attending Collins, one of the things that I find very nebulous online is trying to understand cost structure of this. So we're very open in our costs. We charge 10 euros per graft that we transplant, and there's an average of two hairs in each graft. So if somebody has, say, a 1,000 grafts done, mm-hmm. then that'll be 10,000 euros. Got it. But nobody comes in here without knowing what the cost basis is. I'll always guide you, your family will support you, but it's the man in the mirror who makes the decision, not me. To find out more about hair loss, visit the HRBR website. That's hrbr.ie. Or call 01209-1000 to make an appointment with one of their doctors. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Listen to this Acast show ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.